Now, I don't know about you folks, but there are a number of skills that I wish I had, things I wish I could do that I cannot, and am quite sure that in this life I never will be able to. One of them is play the piano. Good grief, I come in here sometimes Saturday night and Hajin will be here, and I think she just comes to unwind, and she's playing the piano, and I think, that is so beautiful. If I could do that to unwind, rather than, you know... If, if, if I could have that skill and be able to play songs to praise God, I don't know, there's something about the piano that to me is just so awesome, and I know I don't have the right brain. It wouldn't have mattered if I'd taken lessons for years like my sister. It wouldn't have panned out. It, I would not have been promising. Another one is impressions. For some reason, I just always loved people who can do impressions. I think it's such a cool skill. People can watch someone, copy them, and I can't do it. I don't have that ability, and yet, for some reason, I often do. I have one impression that I do. I do an impression of Christopher Walken poorly. It's not great, but I'm working on it. For years, in fact, a few months ago, I made a breakthrough. I realized it's not all cowbell. Wow, up here. No, sometimes he goes low like this. And he talks in that sort of scary whisper for a while. And then, without warning, he's back. And I find when I do a walk-in impression for my friends, this is the response. It's, it's awkward. They look at their feet because no one wants to tell me the truth. It's terrible. Pastor Zach, you sound nothing like the guy. Stop. We beg you, stop. That's the impression. Now, I... Yeah, we're all glad it's done. In fact, that's why my throat's a little messed up. Last night I was trying to make it better. But I couldn't. I couldn't make it any better. I, I would have been just as well playing the piano for you guys. In fact, there's nothing in my mind more cringe-inducing than someone trying to do an impression that they think they've got nailed, and it's bad. As evidence, I give you YouTube. There was this thing a few years ago where somebody had like a deck of, of index cards, and they went through and they did like 50 impressions in two minutes or something. And it was amazing, and it went viral. And then all these other people who thought that they were funny and thought that they had that gift were like, oh, I'm doing 600. And you're like, it's all you, man. Just stop. Just give up. Now, in our text today, we read that we are to be imitators of God. That has got to be a hard one to get down, however good you are at impressions. Imitators of God. Now, imitating God can be either a really good thing or a really bad thing, depending on your heart. I mean, in a sense, this is what caused all the problems in the world. Going back to uh, Genesis 3, right, the fall of man, imitating God in a sense where God said, listen, you get from me the knowledge of what is good and what is evil. Don't eat from that tree. You can eat from any other trees. And they heard the serpent say, no, 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 no. You can eat from that and become like God, knowing good or evil. They said, all right, we'll do a bad impression of God. And they tried and it failed and we're all living with the consequences. And yet, even though it's the beginning, the problem, it is also, in a sense, part of the solution as well. Because we're made in the image of God and that means that when we're operating the way we were created to operate, we are, in a sense, imitating God. We're imaging God. 
But how can we make sure that we are imitating him the good way and not the Genesis 3 way? Thankfully, God thought of that. And double thankfully, living as we do on this side of the cross, we have the ultimate aid in this. The best point of reference for how to properly imitate God, which is to look at the person of Jesus Christ, who is not just made in the image of God like us, but who is the image of God. Colossians 1 tells us he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Or Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So to imitate God, we imitate Christ. This is the name of one of the greatest uh, devotional works of all time, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis. The most translated work, apart from the Bible, was written in 1441, and it was all about how they were losing the heart of Christianity, and to get back to it was to begin once again imitating Christ and not seeking self. Now, as I've already illustrated, there can be some confusion from what it means to imitate God and our word imitate. And look, the word is translated imitators in every single modern translation of the Bible on my shelf. I'm not going to go against them all and tell you I have a better word. I don't. But I think it's worth reminding you that in your English Bible, every English word has English word baggage to it and cultural baggage and sometimes very recent history baggage and the original words in the Greek and the Hebrew behind the English probably don't share that baggage. And in this case, an imitation in modern English is often a knockoff, a cheap copy based on an original, but not the original. Like, that's an imitation Gucci bag because you couldn't afford the original, huh? And it's like, no, I can't. I'm a pastor, but thank you for noticing my bag. And yes, this word in the Greek is mimeomai, which is where we get our word mime and uh, mimeograph and mimic. But even though that's the case, we don't want to feed into this notion that by its very nature, our imitation of God is a cheap copy, not authentic. That baggage does not apply here. And while the story of Adam and Eve in the garden is the story of mankind being convinced to impersonate God in the sense of pretending that they were the ultimate source of authority regarding good and evil, we are called to imitate God by following the original, authentic, genuine article and in so doing to become more and more what we were meant to be as humans made in God's image. In fact, Paul really gives us an aid in understanding this when he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. As beloved children, when a father raises his children to have his ethics, his values, many of his interests, and they look like him, and, and they kind of walk like him, and, and many of their, their you know, idiosyncrasies and mannerisms are like him, they're not a cheap knockoff of this guy. This is who they are in reality. In fact, that's how children learn who they'll be. They look at their parents and kind of imitate them. And this is the same thing that we are called to do. Look at our Father in heaven and imitate him because he is what we are meant to be as long as what we are aspiring to is to bring glory to his name, not to ourselves. His character is what our character is meant to be. And so the Apostle's point here, as we briefly touched on last week as well, 
which is very well suited, I think, to Lent, is that we must become who we really are. That if we're in Christ Jesus, we've been renewed, we've been freed to live as God intended, bearing God's image to the world. And just like actual celebrity impressionists will study the person they're impersonating for hours and and learn every little tick and gesture and movement of the face. So we spend our time observing Jesus and saying, Lord, give me that heart. Give me every, every impulse of compassion, every sense of forgiveness. Give me all of that. We have to keep our eyes fixed on him to imitate him. This reminds me of a parlor game we once played at uh, the Marvin's house. They used to have this fun little Christmas gathering, and and there was great food and and stuff to do. uh, And in fact, they may still have it, and we're just not invited anymore. I don't know which one. But uh, one one year, I don't know if Dave made this up or if it's something he learned somewhere, but we we had two people sit back to back, and they each had a big thing to write on or to draw on. And one of them would draw a picture, and it would be very simple, but it'd be something like a house or a, a stick figure running, or, or whatever. And then it got more and more complex as we went. And the other person sitting back to back with them, they would have to describe what to draw, but they couldn't say, you know, draw a roof. No, they had to say, like, draw a line going up and, and at an angle, and then another one going down. And you watch as they try to create the same picture, but without looking at it, and it was invariably hilarious to see. You have to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in order to imitate him. When we begin to stray, when we begin to to get out of the word, when we begin to to give in to prayerlessness, but say, I still follow Jesus, I still have a pretty good picture in my mind of what's going on here, we have to recenter. It's a good thing that Lent is for. And when we do that, our lives will look a lot like Jesus' life, and our character will look a lot like Jesus' character. As he tells us here, one uh, main result will be that we will live a life of sacrificial love. This is how the NIV translated it. It says, live a life of love. The ESV says, walk in love. Not walk in love, but walk in love. And both of these are correct. But I've mentioned several times throughout Ephesians that Paul likes to use this word. So does John. Peripateo walk around. It means very woodenly walk around. It was an idiom that meant this is how you live your life. You can see how that would be. And so the NIV and other translations would just translate it, live your life this way. But I don't think we want to lose that walk around image because it reminds us and it reinforces that all this stuff of following Jesus and imitating Jesus, it's for our everyday life. As we're walking around, as we're driving around and doing errands, as we're going to work, as we're taking care of our kids, as we're doing whatever we're doing, it's not just for your quote-unquote spiritual life. No, it's, it's for every day. It's for all of life that we should be enjoying the presence of God, fixing our eyes on Jesus, and imitating him. It should mark every moment, every activity. In fact, well, I certainly don't endorse everything that Thomas Akempis teaches in The Imitation of Christ. This is kind of the core of that sort of spirituality, where before any activity, you take time in prayer and say, God, help me to do this to your glory, to do it the best of my ability. And it becomes a spiritual exercise, and, and you lose that kind of divide between sacred and secular, and all of life becomes lived for Jesus. If you'd like to read it, at last count, I think we had like nine copies of it in our church library. I don't know if it's under Ah or Kempis, but it's under one of those in Christian Living. 
In this passage, don't mix, though, that, that Paul begins by contrasting two different kinds of love. And it's kind of the genuine love and the knockoff. True love, the love of Christ, which is self-giving and rooted in holiness, and false love, the, the love of the world, pagan love, which was promoted throughout the Roman world everywhere and is promoted here in our world today as well. True love is seen most clearly in Christ's death on the cross for us, for sinners. In fact, that's exactly what Paul writes here. He says, walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to Christ. Now, if you're writing your Bible, here's a little connection you might want to mark. We don't want to miss this this hinge between last week's text and this week's text. Last week's text, chapter 4, ended with these words, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Then here we see, love one another as God in Christ loved you and gave himself for you. Okay, so the tie between loving and forgiving, which is established by Jesus himself, whoever is forgiven much, loves much, comes into play here. God loved us, so love one another. God forgave us, so forgive one another. That's part of imitating Christ. Christ, of course, is the ultimate example of all of this here. He gave himself to God for us as a sacrifice, described here as a fragrant offering to God. This is Old Testament language. The animal offerings, the sacrifices on the altar in the Old Testament were often called a pleasing aroma to God in Exodus and and Leviticus and elsewhere. At Calvary, Christ fulfilled what those earlier sacrifices were foreshadowing. The great act of love, it's an enduring, eternal, sweet-smelling aroma to God the Father. But check this out. In Philippians 4... Well, he's thanking the Christians in Philippi for this offering for the saints that they gathered together and sent out. He calls that a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So when we walk in Christ's love, our acts of love and mercy are tinged with the aroma of Christ. He takes that further in 2 Corinthians when he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So that's the true love, the self-giving love, the sacrificial love. This he contrasts with the pagan, worldly understanding of love. The sinful heart is always going to try to make love a selfish thing. That is the common denominator everywhere you go. Remember one chapter earlier when Paul told us to walk in humility or live a life of humility, I told you that humility was not a value. It wasn't prized in the Roman world at all. In fact, it was despised. Humility was for losers. The best people weren't the humblest, but the people who won The winner was always the best. That's why he bested everyone to become the winner. And likewise, love was defined not as giving, self-giving, self-sacrificing, but simply as desire. So if you could fulfill your desires, you were someone to be imitated. And this idea has perhaps never been more celebrated than it is now. It is a virtue in our society, in our culture, to view loves in terms of getting what you want. You being fulfilled 
and happy. Whatever makes you happy is the mantra of our day. And coming on the heels of that is inevitably sexual immorality. And yet, if we are going to follow Jesus, we read here that there should not be even a hint of sexual immorality amongst us. This is a big difference between the church and the world. That in one, we celebrate self-taking love that says, I'm the center of the world, and when it starts to feel a little less good to me, I, I just put my love elsewhere, I move on, I forget this, and it's all centered on self rather than Christ-centered love. Where we read, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any other kind of impurity. The world says, don't worry about any of the impurity stuff. As long as there's love, you know, just in any moment, people going from person to person, from home to home, bed to bed, just make sure you love each other and all is well. If you follow Jesus, though, the scriptures get to define what love looks like. Otherwise, we are back to listening to the serpent who says, oh, no, no, you can become like God, knowing good from evil, rather than him telling you what is good and evil. And nothing could be further from living a life of Christ-like love than sexual ethics, sexual relationships, sexual encounters that are forbidden by God in his word. But it's not just sexual sin. That's not the only way that we allow impurity into the body. Next, he goes right to greed. Greed brings impurity into the body. Now, I've been calling this knockoff love, this bad impression of real love, pagan love, because it was the predominant religion of Ephesus and all of the Roman world. The kind of love that was codified in their religions was all about getting, not giving. And this continues to be the case even when the religion in question is called Christian. It's often about getting and not giving. Go on iTunes, look up podcasts, Christianity. Four of the top ten are basically how to get what you want out of God. Two others are basically an apologetic for God doesn't care what you do or how you live your life as long as you're a good person with a sweetheart. In fact, I even recently heard someone trying to promote this idea by quoting St. Augustine, which is all kinds of bonkers if you know anything about St. Augustine. But he had said this very clever quote at one point, love God and do what you want. And so someone say, you see, even St. Augustine, who's all grumpy and stuff, he says, as long as you love God, you can do whatever you want, as if he was promoting a notion of go on sinning that grace may increase. Rather, what Augustine meant was, if you love God, what you'll want is to do what he wants you to do, that your heart will be formed and reformed so that your desires are realigned with his desires. And if that's going to happen, certain things have to be left behind. We started seeing this last week. The context of all this, of course, is that putting off of the old and putting on of the new. And there was this whole list last week. There's a shorter little list this week. And it's great to talk about things that we ought to put off when we are in the midst or at the very beginning of Lent, the first Sunday of Lent. First, he tells us, put off the old way of speaking. The way we talk as Christians should be different from the way the world talks. Again, with the speech. It's like, I got the message there, Paul, last time. <laughs> Just a few verses earlier at 429, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, 
that it may give grace to the one who hears. Last week he told us that grace should be infusing our speech. That should be the mark of a Christian's words. Here he tells us that thanksgiving should be as well. Thanksgiving, yikes. This is, that's not very popular right now, and I'm no exception. I find myself recently falling into these just jags of complaining about things. It's a time of complaining, I think. And, and I have nothing to complain about at the moment. And yet, here, here I am, all oh, this and that and grumph. Maybe part of it's just getting older, sliding in the middle age. I don't know. I hope not. We, we know that everyone is sick of 2020, especially since it's February of 2021 and 2020 is still here. But when I consider that I have a job yet, that I have a wonderful family, a church family, a home, food on the table, a warm bed to lay my head when it's six degrees below out. How could I complain that I, I, I haven't lost to COVID anyone here at this church or, or anyone close to me? I, I've been praying for safety for people and, and for health for my family. And then I turn around and I complain as it's granted. How can I open my mouth without it overflowing thanksgiving, gratitude to God who fulfills all my needs according to his riches in glory? Especially considering that I know saints who have lost much in the last year. People, livelihoods, homes who are still not complaining, but rather giving thanks. That shames me. How can I have days where my total words of complaint is three times higher than my total words of thanks and gratitude, if not more? Reminds me of when I was about my son's age, we went on vacation, and instead of going where I wanted to go, we went where my dad wanted to go for once. I think it might be the only time, which meant a lot of Civil War battlefields, like Monticello and Mount Vernon. I think back now, and I'm like, that was very fascinating. I'd like to go back, but then I was like, this is so boring. Oh, uh, uh, this is so lame. Well, my parents are like paying out money hand over fist for hotels and restaurants, and here I am. Oh, I can't stand this. Uh. They even took us to Bush Gardens in Virginia. I don't think it stopped the complaining. It makes me think of that video of the girl who got the wrong iPhone for Christmas and started chewing her parents out. Oh, I got angry watching that thing. I had kind of the same attitude on that vacation, though. Vacation costs a lot more than an iPhone. My son is so much more grateful and thankful a person than me. So much more, which is good, because I don't think I could have dealt with a smaller version of me living in our house, eating our food, spending our money, and complaining about it. But that's what we do when we complain. We've been told to be imitators of God as his beloved children. If I'm an imitator of God as his beloved child, that's the relationship. Thanksgiving has to march my speech. Not complaining, not bickering. Me and my sister in the back seat, all poking at each other through the whole vacation. And not filthy or profane talk, as he says here. Perhaps the infused with grace so that you're building others up is more inward-focused. How we should use our words within the church for one another within the body, and this other is a little bit more about our testimony to those outside the church. In Colossians 4, 6, Paul says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. That is different from salty speech. Salty speech and seasoned with salt are two very different things. There's that old sermon illustration about the, the pastor who's hanging up a banner outside the church and several people come and are just watching. And he says, is this really that interesting? And they say, we're just waiting to see what a preacher says when he hits his thumb with a hammer. 
Sadly, I'd probably say the same thing you say, they say. I mean, I don't use the name of Jesus in vain, certainly, but we need to be aware of what kind of talk comes out of our mouth because it can be, as James pointed out, and I reminded the children, quite deadly, destructive. The emphasis then on impurity paired with the emphasis on what words we say reminds me of Matthew 15 in which Jesus says what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth is what makes him unclean. He'd been busted by the Pharisee, you know, kind of uh, hit squad waiting to narc on everybody and they saw he and his uh, disciples not ceremonially washing their hands properly before they had a snack. And he said that, and, and they were all so offended. And then he doubled and tripled down on it and said, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. When I was a kid, sometimes if someone said something real nasty to you, you'd say, you kiss your mother with that mouth? We might say to each other, you, you praise your Savior with that mouth? I say that to myself from time to time. And yes, James did say that no man has tamed the tongue, but James also writes, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? This convicts me quite a bit. And then he comes in after it and drops this bomb on us that seems to contradict the entire gospel if we ignore the context. He says in verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, it sounds almost like work salvation here, but we know in light of him just having said in, in chapter 2 that we are saved by grace through faith and not of works, that this is not what he's telling us. He's not telling us we're saved or lost based on how good a life we live. That's what the world believes. And the world is lost. God does not reward those people who do the best impression of a righteous person with eternal life. If I could do a perfect Christopher Walken impression... And let's face it, I'm close. If I could do it to the point where even family on the phone wouldn't be, Chris, is that you? I still couldn't walk into his bank and take his money out or walk into his home and eat his food and sleep in his bed, which I imagine is enormous with like uh, big drapey things over it. It'd still be mimicry. It would be fake. It would be false. Rather, what is being taught here is that if someone makes a confession of faith in Jesus and then goes right back into a life of sexual immorality, covetousness, impurity, greed, that profession of faith was nothing more than an impersonation of a Christian. It wasn't real. Now, we all sin, certainly, and we need to recognize there's a tension here. We see that tension really clear in 1 John. In 1 John 3, 6, we read, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him, him being Jesus. And we say, whoa, I've kept on sinning. Does that mean I, I don't know him? But two chapters earlier, he said this, Beloved, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he says both at the same time, if, if you abide in him and keep on sinning, it doesn't make sense. 
That if, if, we, if, we've abiding, if we're abiding in Him, we won't go on sinning. We won't make that our lives, ourselves, our character. Rather, we'll imitate Him. But if we claim to have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. There is a tension there, and it's one that we really need to lean into during Lent. That we would be continually purified and sanctified so that we know we'll never be sinless, but that we will go on sinning less and less and less. Then according to verse 6 here, it was very popular back then, just as it is today for smooth talkers, false teachers, to say what people's itching ears want to hear on this subject, which is why it's so widely propagated. Namely, to teach that holiness doesn't matter, how you live doesn't really matter, what you say doesn't really matter. All that matters is that you check the box at some point that you're Team Jesus and that you have some form of worldly love in your heart. That is certainly not what we read in any of the scriptures, but he has been working against this notion throughout most of the book of Ephesians. Let no one deceive you, he says, with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Friends, if Jesus is your Savior, He is your Lord. I've said this many times and it bears repeating again and again. You cannot own Jesus as your Savior without bowing to Him as your Lord. It just does not work. And so he says, listen, the, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of, of disobedience. Do not be partners with them. Those peddlers of empty words. Best-selling self-help books or top ten podcasts or not. Do not partner with them. This word partners, same word that he used back in chapter 3 when he said that all Christians are partakers in the same promise. We're fellow partakers in the promises of Christ. Don't be partakers in these lies. Because of them, the wrath of God is coming. Anyone who tells you, don't worry about obeying all these commands, just love Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. So don't bother with them. Don't partner with them. Don't cooperate with that sort of ministry, even in the name of unity. Now, this whole book of Ephesians has been written to address a vital need for unity in the church. And still, he says, listen, there is a point after which unity simply brings impurity into the church. Impure doctrine, the kind of teaching that can bring the wrath of God with it. So he sets these limits because... You were once darkness. Isn't that a wild statement? You, not you were in the dark. You were the dark. You were once darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus, to imitate God as beloved children. Hiding our wicked deeds, burying our wicked thoughts in our hearts, shrouding it all in a cloak of darkness. This is not a mark of a child of God. Rather, shine the light on fruitless deeds. For in, in verse 9, it says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Before we close, I think we do have to address the question of what this text is saying. What does the apostle mean in verse 11 when he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. What, what is he telling us to do? Well, this verse has been used to justify all sorts of public shaming of people. 
They used to put people in, in the stocks in early American colonies if they did anything wrong to shame them. They'd say, see, we're exposing your deeds of darkness, just like the Bible says. And then, you know, pelt them with rotten spinach and tomatoes and rocks and things. And then later on, we said, oh, no, no, we're far more civilized. Now we just mock and shame people on Twitter, which is global. I don't know which is better. Th- this has been used by Christians as an as a excuse for all sorts of shaming and, and vicious attacks, even like people who have entire blogs dedicated to cataloging the sins and shortcomings of others, as if what St. Paul was saying here is, do not take part in the deeds of darkness, but create exposés about them. We know this is not what he has in mind because he immediately follows it up with, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. If it's shameful to mention it, probably we shouldn't obsess over it and make it our life's work. So what does this mean? Well, all light really has to do to expose the darkness is to shine, right? If light shines, the darkness loses, and the things that are hidden are exposed. And we ourselves, he tells us, are the light, and just by being the light of the world, we then obey this commandment. And according to verse 13, everything exposed by the light becomes visible. I mentioned how such an important distinction between the world and the church is how we speak. I'll tell you how often I'm talking to somebody and they say, what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm a pastor. And immediately their language gets way cleaner, just instantly. They're like, gosh darn fooey all of a sudden. I think that's because the light shining causes people to see the reality of what's hidden in the darkness, and that can have a great effect. The greatest witness is not an angry, offended Christian rehearsing and lamenting all the bad, bad stuff in the world, but rather a faithful Christian, loving others as God loved us in Christ, forgiving as Christ forgave us, and letting his or her light shine so that people around us begin to see things in a new light. And the last verse of our text here tells us that the result can be that those who are illuminated by us, the light, become light as well. What hopeful news for dark times, specifically for dark times. This reminds me very much of the Sermon on the Mount. This is is exactly the same teaching when Jesus said, Let your light shine before others so that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And to close the whole passage, the Apostle quotes a hymn of the early church. And I love it when we get these little glimpses into the hymnody of the early church. It says, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I wish there was some way we could know the melody and we could sing it together, but we'll have to do that in glory. This is probably a baptismal hymn saying as people are watching someone be baptized into the church, this picture of their sins washed away, calling everyone who sees this light shining to wake up. If they're in darkness, if they're, if they're not a believer, to, to repent and believe. It's almost like when you're, you've been in bed too long. You know, remember you're a teenager and you'd sleep till noon and somebody, your parents would come and just rip the blinds down, let the sunlight in, get up! The light is here! And perhaps it's a little rebuke for the sleeping Christian as well. 1 John 5, or rather 1, 5 through 7, right before that text that we just read, he says, Whoever keeps this word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment. 
Walk in the light as he is in the light. Walk in the light as he is in the light. For God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. You know, I think how hard it would be, how much harder yet, if we tried to play that parlor game where I couldn't see what this person was describing for me to draw, and they couldn't see what I was drawing, so they couldn't tell me I was doing it wrong. We're back to back. But what if I couldn't see what I was drawing either? If we just turned off the lights and it was completely blind. Now that would be the way to play the game for maximum laughs. But if we really want to be able to imitate God, we have to turn on the light. We have to walk in the light. Fix our eyes on Jesus Christ because you can't pretend to be light. No one can stand in a dark room and do an impression of light. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is the light. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And we are made in his image and we too are the light. Therefore, be imitators of God as his beloved children. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as this Lent begins, we would let you purify us, our hearts, our desires, our speech, everything about us, Lord, particularly those things we may have been holding back from you in the past. Lord, I give them to you. I pray that we all give them to you now. In the words of the old hymn of the faith, I surrender all. We pray, Lord, that we would be imitators of God as your beloved children. Lord, we pray that we would build each other up and that the world from outside would look in and see that we are the genuine article, not a bad impersonation of what it looks like to truly be righteous or self-righteous, but Lord, truly those who follow Jesus and have truly been saved and made new. In his name we pray. Amen.